I'd like to begin this morning by reading you a testimony from someone in our church. This is the testimony that she wrote. Psalm 68 tells us that the Lord is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, that he sets the lonely in, fam- lonely in families. Three years ago, as we were coming out of an isolating pandemic season, I had moved from living in a house with my closest friends to a fairly small one-bedroom apartment in downtown Grand Rapids. I had served as a small group leader in Calvary's 7th and 8th ministry for several years, and throughout the pandemic had been driving to door and back with one of my students to make sure she could be at youth group each week. In the two years I had known her, this student had lived in three different homes, sometimes with her dad, sometimes with their grandmother, and had been to two different schools. Later that summer, when it became clear that this student, who at that time was living with her 19-year-old brother, wasn't sure where she'd be going to high school, I wondered at the prompting of a friend if I was supposed to ask her to live with me, and together we'd figure out where she would go to high school. It's fairly weird to take a 13-year-old girl from your small group to lunch at Chipotle and say, hey, I think God wants me to ask you to live with me, but in faith I did. A couple of weeks later, on a 7th, 8th camping trip, this student agreed to take me up on the offer and move into my one-bedroom apartment with me. Immediately, it felt like all the people in my life were activated to help From my co-workers at church to my family and to my friends, God made it evident from the beginning of this journey that he would provide for all our needs. In his grace, I was not on my own. He had led me over many years to the network of resources and relationships that would create the stability this student so desperately needed. In the past three years, God has provided in so many unique and beautiful ways. Furniture, bedding, clothes, and so many gift cards and cash as we entered that first year of high school. He opened the door for her to attend North Point, continues to use the people of this church to provide for her tuition there, and has used the teachers in that community to surround her with his grace and love. He used gifts from people within Calvary to provide a down payment for a house with two bedrooms and even a fenced-in backyard for our dog. When she turned 16, God essentially gave her a car. God showed his love for her and for me by having her come and live with me. This is who our God is, a father, a defender, a provider, who calls us on journeys of faith that we might know him better each step of the way. Amen. I hope you hear in that story God's love and concern for the most vulnerable among us. That God loves looking out for those who need him. And that especially children who are in need, God's special focus is on them. This morning we want to look at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew that affirms God's love and concern for the most vulnerable Among us. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18. 
If you don't have a Bible with you, we provide Bibles because we think it's so very important for you to be able to see the words of Jesus yourself. There should be one in the rack in front of you that looks like this. If you're using one of these Bibles, you just simply turn to page 799 and you'll be in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're gonna look together at verses 10 to 14. So that's page 799, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is speaking here and he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, as we come to this passage, our first question is, to whom is Jesus referring in this passage? I don't know about you, but when I hear the passage read or when I think through the passage, when I hear about not despising little ones and taking care of children, I have in mind just a cute, beautiful four-year-old girl with chubby cheeks and pouty lips and a bright smile on her face. And I hear her saying, I love you, mommy. And I think, who would ever despise a beautiful creature like that? Why would anybody ever treat a child like that poorly? Of course we should be defending and helping such a beautiful, wonderful, sweet cherub. Now while I do think that Jesus has that four-year-old in mind, I think he has more than just that beautiful, sweet four-year-old in mind. How do I know that? Well, here we've got to back up and get the context and the flow of what Jesus is doing in Matthew 18. This is actually the third passage in this chapter in which Jesus talks about children. And to understand who he is referring to in verses 10 to 14, we need to recognize the pattern of what he's doing. If you go back with me to verses 1 to 5, there Jesus is talking about a singular child. He's invited a child who happens to be there. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. A child who happens to be there, he invites that singular child in the midst of the group of disciples and uses that child as an affirmation of what faith looks like. So Jesus is focused on this one child. When you get to verses 6 through 9, we see that the focus has broadened. No longer just one child, Jesus says in verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. And we see that Jesus is not just interested in this singular child from verses 1 to 5. He now has in focus all Christian children. All those who believe in Jesus. And we hear in verses 6 through 9, Jesus' absolute concern that nobody should cause one of his Christian children to stumble. Josh talked about that last week. When we get to verses 10 to 14, 
the range has widened even further. Not just a singular child and not just all Christian children. Now Jesus is talking about, see that you do not despise any child, Christian or non-Christian, any child. God has in mind the most vulnerable, and here he's talking about all children. So if you will, as you're marching through Matthew 18, it's like Jesus has his focus in the beginning on one child, and then he broadens the range out to all Christian children, and then he broadens the range even further to all children. So we get the sense that Jesus wants us to view Matthew 10 through 14 with the broadest angled lens possible. Not just that cute cherub, four-year-old, angel baby. But who? Well, it says in our passage, little ones. It says that in verse 10 and verse 14. That's actually not that helpful because in Greek, the word that's translated little ones is just the word micron. You'll probably recognize that from our English language. Micron doesn't mean child. It just means small or lesser. It can be applied to children, but it can also be applied to lots of things that are not children. In this passage, it is referring to children, but we know that not because the word micron means children, it doesn't, but because in verses one to five, Jesus is talking about children, and there he uses the word paideion. Okay, this is the Greek word for children. You might recognize like pediatrics or a pediatrician coming from this Greek word. That is the word for child. So when we get to our passage, we know Jesus is talking about children because that's what he's been talking about in verses 1 to 5. And when he says little ones, he's referring to paideons. Now the question is, is when a Greek speaker heard the word paideon, when they hear this word child, to what does this refer? What does Jesus have in mind when he thinks of a child? Well, the best way to figure this out is to look in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament are Jesus' scriptures. There is a Greek translation of it called the Septuagint. And when you're looking through the Old Testament, you will see this word used in a variety of contexts. If we looked for the widest range possible, this word is not used for 80-year-olds, but if we looked for the widest range possible, where would we see this word being used? Well, on one end of the range, we would see the word paideon being used in Exodus 21 for an unborn child. In Exodus 21, it says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, that's the NIV's translation, but what it literally says in both Hebrew and in Greek, if her unborn child comes out. And so here Pideon refers to what the world calls a fetus, but an unborn child. That's one end of the range. So when Jesus uses the word Pideon, he certainly has to have that end of the range in mind since that's how the Old Testament uses the word. At the other end of the range, we find the oldest use for the word Pideon is in 1 Kings 12. And in this passage, that word is being used of a young adult. 
It's used of the young adults who are giving King Rehoboam some pretty bad advice. So if we want to ask in our passage, when Jesus is talking about children, and we want the fullest range possible that he has in mind, we think he's thinking all the way from the unborn to young adults. And what we're going to do this morning is we want to apply our passage to those two ends of the spectrum, to the unborn and to young adults. It's not that we want to ignore the cute four-year-old sort of in the middle, but if we get the two ends of the spectrum right, then we'll get the middle right as well. So we want to think first about what this passage means as applied to the unborn, and then we want to think about what this passage means as applied to young adults. Let's start with the unborn. Now, when you hear me say the unborn, many of you in this room are going to think, are we talking about abortion? And I believe Jesus is talking about abortion. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. What we're not going to do is talk about abortion from a legislative point of view. Meaning we think that I think that Jesus has something he wants us to hear with regards to abortion from this passage. But I don't think we're meant to be talking about it from a legislative point of view. Why not? Four reasons. Number one, abortion is legal in the Roman Empire at the time Jesus is speaking. It will be outlawed in the Roman Empire, but not until 211 A.D. That's some 180 years after Jesus makes these statements. Which means that Jesus is living in a society in which it is legal to have an abortion, and yet he doesn't seem to be doing anything to pass legislation or doing anything from a legislative point of view about that. Now... If in our culture, the entire culture were to accept that abortion should be illegal, I would be so happy. But because Jesus is not talking about legislative issues and not working towards legislative issues, we're not talking about legislative issues as they relate to abortion this morning. Second reason why we're not talking about legislative issues, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. This passage does not say, see that they do not despise one of these little ones. Jesus is talking to us as Christians. He's not talking to all people. He's not talking to those outside of the church. In this passage, he's speaking to you and to me, those who know Jesus as Lord, and he wants us to think in a Christian manner about the unborn, and that's his focus. So that's our focus this morning as well third reason why we're not talking about legislative issues. Jesus's argument as to why we should value the unborn, namely that their angels see God's face in heaven, is not an argument that would stand up in a Roman court or an American court of law or in the court of public opinion, and Jesus knows that. He's not trying to win a public relations battle. He's not trying to convince people. He's taking people, you and I, who already believe in him, and he is revealing something to us that science could never know. 
because he's not interested in what society is trying to do in discussing this. He wants you and I to think through this in a Christian manner. The fourth reason why we're not talking about legislative issues as it relates to abortion is that when Jesus talks about sheep wandering off, he does not talk about building better fences so that no sheep can wander. He's talking about how God chases after wandering sheep. We're going to talk about that a little more when we get to the young adults portion of this. But if Jesus was talking about legislative issues, he would say, how do we build better fences so that no sheep ever run away? Since that's not what he's doing here, what we're going to do this morning is we want to understand how this passage relates to the unborn, not from a legislative point of view, but from a Christian point of view. So verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. That word despise is an important word for us. So take note of it, underline it, highlight it whatever you want to do, but this is what that word means. So what we've done is we've sort of gone to a Greek dictionary or a lexicon and looked up this word, and I've given for you a portion of the definition that you would find in that dictionary. What this Greek word means that's translated despise is to consider of little value, to consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against something else. So the idea here is this word despised is used when you're sort of comparing two things. If you choose the thing that is lesser, that is a despising of the thing. Why is this important? Well, because there's a lot of people in our culture who want to weigh in the balance a woman's right to choose and the life of an unborn child. This is the exact thing Jesus is talking about. If you weigh the life of an unborn child against a woman's right to choose, to not choose the child or to highlight a woman's right to choose is to despise the child in relationship to this thing that is not as valuable. Now, free will and free choices given by God to men and to women is a beautiful thing. But when compared against the value of the life of a child, they don't compare. Now the life of a mother, which might be jeopardized during the pregnancy, as weighed against the life of the child, that is to weigh two equal things. And that requires a lot of grace and a lot of guidance from God to navigate through that situation. But when Jesus says, don't despise a child, and we think that word can refer to the unborn, to weigh the life of an unborn child against something like a woman's right to choose, if you don't choose the child, that's despising the child. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, why does God consider this so important why does God not want us to despise babies it's because he loves them he's the creator of life God loves life and we see his life his love for the unborn 
in the fact that Jesus says, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father. What Jesus is revealing to us is something that society could never understand or know. But what Jesus is revealing to us is the way that we know that God loves children, including unborn children, is that he assigns an angel to them. And those angels are given special access to God the Father. Now that might raise the question. When does the angel get assigned to the child? To put it in modern terms, when does life begin? Well, I think that Jesus wants to show us from this passage that life begins before birth. Remember, we're talking here in the Gospel of Matthew about angels and babies. When you hear angels and babies with the Gospel of Matthew, especially this time of year, what should we think of? Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, opens with an angel and a conception or a baby. What is that angel's name? Gabriel, which we are told he is called Gabriel because he stands in the presence of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And Gabriel comes to announce to Mary to say, you will conceive there is going to be life in your womb. And so when we hear about angels being assigned, we have to think first and foremost of Jesus, and the angel is assigned at conception. Additionally, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the angel comes to announce. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. But Jesus does not become the Son of God when he's born. Jesus is always the Son of God, meaning that his divine nature is present in the womb. And in order for Jesus' divine nature to be present in the womb, there must be a human nature that he is connected to. And that human nature had to start before birth. There are other things that God reveals to us. Again, society would not recognize these but we're not talking about what society thinks we're talking about what Christians think God has given us other evidences in his word that life begins before birth for example in Exodus 21 that same passage that we talked about earlier the penalty for killing an unborn child is the same penalty as killing an adult person a life for a life in Luke chapter 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes on John the Baptist before he's born. The Holy Spirit cannot and does not come upon non-human objects. The Holy Spirit comes upon John the Baptist before he's birthed because John the Baptist is created in the image of God even before he's born. In Psalm 51, David says that his life began at conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. Not in birth did my mother conceive me, but at conception. Psalm 139, God is weaving us together, wove us together in our mother's wombs. God is active and present in the womb, creating life. That's what God does. Isaiah 49. Before I was born, the Lord called me. 
From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. These are all evidences that life begins according to God before birth. And so when Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, he's affirming for us that he is against abortion. He is affirming for us that the life of an unborn child is a life that matters, a life that should be looked after and cared for. Now what's true in the extreme case is also true in the middle. So for example, for parents to choose career over their teenage child is to weigh two things against one another. If you choose career over caring for your teenage child, that is to despise the child. That's what Jesus is talking about. For parents to choose family or hobbies or friends or finances or other things over caring for their children is to choose something that is not as valuable over something that is more valuable. For a church to pour lots of resources into adult ministries and to give no resources to children's ministries is to despise children. What God is trying to say is that he is, loves and cares for the most vulnerable for children among us. We've taken the extreme case, which is the unborn, to help us recognize that it's true all throughout that spectrum. Which leads us to the second case, which is the young adult. When you think about this passage in regards to young adults, maybe there's some of you here this morning who when you saw in the worship folder or up on the screen the word unborn, when you heard me say we were going to talk about abortion, your heart sunk and old memories perhaps came back, and you feel guilt, you might feel shame for having participated in something like that. What I want you to hear is verses 12 to 13 seem like they're out of place, but I could think of no better verses to follow up what is said in verse 10 than these. Listen to them again now in this context. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. I don't think you can read this passage. If you're going to hear abortion in verse 10, you have to hear God's love and kindness and forgiveness to any young adult who might have stumbled into doing something like that in verses 12 to 13. So if you're here this morning and what I've said brings back difficult, painful memories, if you think to yourself, I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to do that. I can't believe that that happened. If you're here experiencing that guilt, the shame that Satan brings with those kind of memories, as we shift our focus off of the unborn onto young adults or even older adults who may have made choices when they were young adults, 
what I want you to hear very, very clearly is that God doesn't love you any less. He's not just one who loves the unborn. He loves all of us who are sinners too. And I have some stuff from my past that I have a hard time remembering without tears in my eyes, without thinking to myself, how in the world could you have done that? Mine might be different than yours. But whatever it is, Jesus follows up verse 10 with this affirmation. If you have wandered, you need to know that God absolutely, totally loves you. That there's some people in this Christian church, hopefully not this one, but there's some people in the Christian church which would weigh you or I with our sins and our failures against other people and find us not quite as good in God's eyes. Maybe in your own heart you're weighing yourself against somebody else and you're like, well, they didn't make the same mistakes I did. I know I shouldn't have done those things. I know I'm not as good. Maybe you're weighing yourself against other people and you look around and you're like, everybody looks so nice and everybody's got such great testimonies and everybody's got such great stories and you are despising yourself. That too is what Jesus is talking about in verse 10. To evaluate or consider ourselves less than because of our sins, because of our mistakes, whether it's abortion or anything else. That's what Jesus is talking about. I want you to notice in verse 12, the sheep that wanders off is still a sheep. They haven't stopped being a child of God. And if you've wandered from the Lord, you've not stopped being a child of God. And you have not gotten out from under his love. And no matter what you've done in the past, no matter the heinous sins that I've committed, no matter what kind of stuff we've done, Jesus is affirming for us that he loves us, that he will not let us go. So I would like to paraphrase verse 13 for you, given this context. Some of you might not like this paraphrase, but I think it's from Jesus, and so I want you to listen carefully. Truly I tell you, God is happier about the one person who had an abortion and repented than the 99 that never had an abortion. Do you hear him saying that? Do you hear that in the context of this passage? This is not wishful thinking. We have shown you examples of how this passage applies both to the unborn and to those who have wandered off. Jesus is saying to you today that when you confess and return to him, he is happier over the person who had an abortion and repented than those who never had abortions in the first place. And you might want to ask, how is that possible? How is that possible that I could do something this horrific? How is it possible? And whatever your thing is, I know what my things are. And I want to ask that question all the time. How is it possible, God, that you could get past this stuff? 
How is it possible that you would not hold this against me? Well, remember, in Exodus 21, the penalty for killing an unborn child is death. A life for a life. How could God ever get over that? Well, this is why we're celebrating communion this morning. Is because we're remembering that whether it was abortion or idolatry or denying Jesus or adultery or abuse or murder or neglect or theft or blasphemy or dishonoring parents, we have all done things deserving death. But God, in his infinite mercy and love, chose to take our death sentence and give it to Jesus instead. And because God did that, he is now free to pursue us in love. He is free to forgive. He is free to forget. I know because you are just like me. You've got stuff from your past that you're like, I will never forget that. And that's okay. But just know God will never remember it. This is what Jesus did for us. This is why we gather to celebrate communion. This is why we say, who are you, God, that you should treat us this way? That we were your enemies. We went and did the very thing you told us not to do. We despised children, the most vulnerable among us. We denied you. We abandoned you. We did all of these things, yet you've chosen to love us. How can this be? And God says, because of Jesus, I'm free to come running after you. There is nothing you and I will ever do, ever, that would cause God to abandon us. This is why we're so grateful for what Jesus did. He paid for all those sins. And if in the first half of the sermon when we mentioned abortion, you just kept feeling guilt and shame and memories and why, please, please, please hear the second half of the sermon which is God saying to you, I will remember your sins no more. And if this morning, whether it's abortion or something else, you find yourself on the run from God, you should at least know this. What you're running from is love. <laughs> He's chasing after you, not to punish you, but to love you. He's finding you that you're lost because you're lost and he wants you to come home. Jesus is running after you this morning, not because he wants to make your life more miserable. You're already experiencing the misery of running away. Jesus is trying, and if you'll just stop running, he will catch you. And when he catches you, it's with arms of love to welcome you back in and to rejoice over you. I get it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me either but I'm willing to believe it.
I'm willing to believe that there's a God who loves me so much that the unmentionables from my past, the stuff that if I told you right now, you'd all leave this room. That that stuff got paid for by Jesus. And that somehow, I don't get it. Somehow, I get to experience God's love.